Uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us in uh, today's AI Explained on Machine Learning for High-Risk Applications. My name is Krishnaram Kentapedi. I am the Chief AI Officer and Chief Scientist at Fiddler. I'll be your host today. Uh, please feel free to uh, put in your questions in the Q&A at any time during the fireside chat. We will kind of alternate between some questions that I, I have for our special guest and also the questions from the attendees. Also, by the way, the session today will be recorded and shared with all the attendees after the session. We have a very special guest on today's fireside chat and it's Parul Pandey, a principal data scientist at H2O.ai and also the co-author of the book, Machine Learning for High-Risk Applications. Welcome, Parul. Thank you, Krishnaran, and so glad to be here and also very excited to be here on the podcast and to share my experience with others. Let's start with um, uh, the book itself. I, I read a few chapters in the book and I found it very, very insightful for the benefit of our attendees. Could you share perhaps the key takeaways from the book? Yeah, sure. So the book name is also High Risk Machine Learning for High Risk Applications, which is also the title of today's Fireside Chat. And it literally is, <laughs> it just tells you and gives you ways and guidelines to for doing machine learning for high risk applications. So the way we've divided this book is in two halves. So the first half tells you about the technical aspects of what you should do when you are creating products, AI products or machine learning products, especially which uh, are in high-risk domains, healthcare, financial domains, banking sectors. And the second half of the book has implementations in Python. So for the ones who want to actually go and code and see the code and want to replicate the stuff, we also have something for them. The main crux of the book actually is so we three, three of us who wrote the book, it was me, Patrick Paul, and James Curtis. What we want to actually tell people is machine learning or AI products, like any other technologies, can fail. And it's absolutely possible they can fail. Most of the time when we build AI products, we're always so positive that this is going to change education, this is going to change healthcare, this is going to change everything. We don't see on the negative side of it. And it's always Humans on the on the other side of it who always get maybe they're denied a loan, they're denied some healthcare uh, opportunities. So what we are saying is ML can fail. Yes, it could be by intentional abuse or maybe unintentional activities. So we try to sort of give ways to ensure that how you can manage it. Of course, this is not a golden rule or something. It's from our own experiences that we've tried to put in. And we sort of give certain guidelines that people can follow in order to ensure that whatever they create doesn't harm anyone. So, so that's in short. Yeah, yes, I, I think this is very, very relevant in today's context, right? Like, I, I think maybe if if I could add to that or rephrase that, you're emphasizing that as technologists, we should not just design thinking that everything will go as intended, right? We should also perhaps loop in all the relevant stakeholders, understand what might be the potential negative impacts or unintended ways in which the technology might get used. This is particularly pertinent for the machine learning or AI applications. Right? So in, in, the, in the first chapter in the, in the book, you discuss the risk management framework 
for AI proposed by NIST. So by the way, for anyone who is uh, not familiar with NIST, NIST is the National Institute of, I believe, Science and Technology. Uh, Standards and Technology. Sorry, National Institute of Standards and Technology in the US. And NIST comes up with lots of standardization frameworks. And one of the recent such frameworks is the AI risk management framework. Could you perhaps give us an overview of this framework and how it can be applied by data scientists and machine learning practitioners? Uh, yes, so uh, so we've mentioned NIST a lot of times in the book, so I think this is a good platform to talk about it. Uh, so like you correctly said, NIST is an acronym for National Institute of Standards and Technologies, and it's a body that falls under the U.S. Department of Commerce. So what these people did was uh, they took in the, collaborated with the private players and, and the public sectors and experts in those sectors, and they together came out with a document or a framework to better manage the risk to individuals, to organizations, et cetera, which, is, which comes associated with AI and machine learning. So before this, I think uh, it's interesting that machine learning, so to say, doesn't have those strong guidelines or framework. There's a lot of talk right now going about regulation, but everything is in a very nascent stage as of now. We, we do have some small things, but I think NIST, NIST AI uh, RMS or Risk Management Framework was the first such framework which actually put forth broad ideas as to how to make your product more trustworthy. But there's an in, uh, important thing that I like to say here and also we put in the book that the Risk Management Framework is a voluntary tool. It's not a regulation and NIST is not a regulator. So that's not a regulator. It's a voluntary tool which you as a company or as an individual can adopt. Uh, but it's very nicely written and they basically have the four uh, broad areas under which they sort of classify the risk. So, so they have the four categories are governed. So, you know, how do you create a culture or how do you cultivate a culture of risk management in your organization? How do you map the risk? How you measure the risk? And then how you mitigate those risks? So now what we've done is to follow our, on our own advice as well. In the first half of the book, in every chapter, you'll find a call-out table where essentially we've mapped every section of that chapter to the risk AI RMS section. So this is helpful in two ways. People who've read the NIST AI RMS can see its practical implementation via our book. And the people who haven't read the NIST framework they can read our book and then they'll get an idea of what are the important aspects of it. So, so we've really worked very hard in, in actually aligning every chapter and every subheading with the NIST framework. So essentially, like I said, it has the four broad pillars of govern, map, measure, and manage. And everything they try to put under those subheadings. Yeah, yeah, yes. In fact, that's one aspect I really liked about the book, which is this mapping, right? So it's, it comes across as, it's not just maybe abstract guidelines, but it's mm-hmm. very, very practical and hands-on yeah. guidelines for data scientists and uh, machine learning engineers and other practitioners. Right? So along those lines, like what, what could you shed, us, uh, shed some light on what are some of the organizational best practices for uh, machine learning risk management? So I think whenever we talk about any organization and sort of having inculcating practice so that we create good, trustworthy products, 
the, I think first and most important is it has to be a holistic approach. That is, it has to flow from top to bottom. Responsible AI is not something like, you know, and then after we create a product, we just sort of just add this few post hoc techniques and say, look, this is, we've tried to use chat, we've tried to use language, this we are explaining. It has to be a whole process. And one of the greatest examples that we can borrow from is the banking industry. The banking industry is a highly regulated industry, and they've been they've they've been regulated, and and they work pretty well. And they have a concept of something which is called model risk management framework, which is MRM. And it's basically MRM itself derives from the Federal Reserve SR eleven seven, and this came into being after the two thousand eight financial crisis. So they made sure that something that happened in 2008 doesn't replicate. And so there are a lot of good things that we can borrow from there. And I think the first one would be, so we've written about it a lot, but I'll just cherry pick a few of them. So one of them, I think, is forecasting failure mode. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a little funny because, you know, you'll say that you cannot forecast failures beforehand when you're creating a product. How can you do that? But this is where I think if we are able to do that, we're going to save our company a lot of money. So one way to do that is essentially have an incident database. There is already an AI incident database for the ones who want to look up. If you you write AI incident database, it's a database of all things wrong that have happened with AI. And Mm -hmm. it is as latest as maybe, I think, a few months back. So they've shown examples. And the, some of the so we always talk about some of the known examples. We talk about ProPublica. We talk about the Tay chatbot. But some recent ones is the RoboDex fiasco that happened in Australia. There's one recent which happened in Netherlands. So so these are learnings. So if we are creating a product which is very similar to the ones, um, this is going to be an, a red, a lot of red flags. And we will know that we don't have to repeat what has happened in the past. Essentially, you learn from the past so that you don't repeat it in the future. The other thing I think uh, of model risk management would be risk theory. You tier your products into like high risk, low risk, medium risk, so that you don't have to put all your workforce, you know. Of course, we understand that not, not all organizations have such a lot of workforce there to take care of every single risk. So you can tier your product into three risks. Uh, create robust documentation of the models, something on the terms of model cards or data cards that we see today. I think it's being followed. I, I see a lot of large language models that are coming out now, the open source one. I, it's very nice to see that all of them are coming with model cards. But we need more robust ones actually also telling when and when not to use them. Have good model monitoring processes in place. Check for drift, whenever drift occurs, check for model decaying. Uh, so on, I think. And another important thing, I think, just to add, and I would also like to have your opinions on that, Krishnaram. I think when a team is working on any AI tool, what most of the time it happens is they are the ones who create it and they are the ones who test it. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, if we could have another team which is working on a very separate project be the ones that test it, I think not only will be able to make it more robust, but they'll also be, you know, capable of looking at maybe the darker side of what the team who's creating is not able to see. So uh, these are just a few of the ones. Yeah, I, yes, I, th- I think that that's a really interesting observation. In fact, I have seen that 
the banking industry does something along these lines. So there is a team that develops machine learning models or even broadly any analytical models. There, is a, there are other teams which actually measure the risk or other effects of these models. So, so I think that creates a, uh, a nice structure where there are and these two teams may have slightly different incentives and there is yes. a there's a kind of positive tension and a, a tension in a good way between these teams so it's it's not as though people who are developing the models may be malicious it's unintentionally they may not check for say biases or other blind spots and so having a different team that serves as an auditing or a or a layer risk management kind of layer before the models are deployed, I think helps a lot. This is a practice perhaps that other industries can also potentially adopt. Yeah. Right? Like the in at tech companies, I have seen the structure where there is often a team which develops uh, the machine learning models or the, the data science or the AI team. But often in sensitive domains, the the team needs to get approval from the security, legal, and uh, like PR teams. So, so these are other teams. The security, legal, PR often yeah. act as kind of uh, checks on what gets deployed. But, but the challenge is that often uh, they may not have enough bandwidth to review yeah. each and every feature or uh, machine learning product updates that happen so so the focus gets confined to yes. some of those highly sensitive domains at least this was the case when i used to be part of linkedin several years back okay. but but i think as you uh, point out having separate teams focused on risk assessment and focused on auditing and so forth it's always a, a great idea and the key thing in all this is the right incentive mechanisms at different levels in the company. It doesn't really help if, say, the leadership is passionate about responsible AI or is aligned on ensuring that the machine learning and AI models are trustworthy, but the data scientists or the, the other teams in the organization are not sufficiently incentivized. So often I say that the data scientists should get as much incentive finding any issues with the models yes. as they get yes. when say they result in business metric improvements. I think that's an that's more like in cultural and organizational aspect that as leaders, the, the leaders at an organization should kind of inculcate across the organization. Totally. I think, and just uh, one example that came to my mind uh, was, uh, if you remember the Twitter uh, algorithm, of course, before uh, the Twitter 2.0 that we have seen now. So before that, they had this image cropping algorithm, which is essentially that if you put up any pictures on Twitter, so what you see on your timeline is decided by that algorithm in a way so that you know you can get more eyeballs. And one day suddenly one of the person had put up a tweet there that you know it was favoring fairer people and it more than the darker ones, it was favoring females and a lot of other problems that they had. And at that time, then Twitter actually realized that there is some issue with their algorithm. And so much so that they had to scrap that algorithm and then they organized a bug bounty. Basically, they asked people to come and test their systems. So, so I think bug bounties are also good if you have an open source system of course. You can't do that for those ones. But they organized bug bounty. People came and they actually showed flaws in their algorithm, what it was. It was a very nice case study, actually. 
I think OpenAI is also doing a bug bounty. And then yesterday, Llama 2 was released, the LLM. And I was going through the white paper, which is like huge, but it was very nice to see a complete text dedicated to responsible AI. They've created a framework and they are also going to incentivize people who are going to find bugs in their software. So I think these are good ways in which people are doing, and this could serve as potential example to other players in the company in, in the same field of working. That it's not always it's about the business. Uh, if you are going to make sure that your system is foolproof, it's going to give you better, I said, I say returns over a long period of time, then you get sued by some person after a few years, maybe. Uh, yes, exactly. I think I think this idea of bug bounties is is a really interesting aspect. I, I believe it originally came out of the security community, right? Yes, giving, yes, yes. Uh, giving more and more adoption in other communities like the data science or machine learning community. And, and in fact, taking a step further, often when it comes to machine learning or especially like more recent large language models or generative AI models, there's often an emphasis on red teaming, again, like inspired by the red teaming in the security community, where just like bug bounties, the, the focus is also on discovering issues internally before perhaps making the product available externally. I think, I think bug bounties, red teaming, and reviews by perhaps different teams with the appropriate incentive structure. I think all these are perhaps part of the solution for addressing model risk management. We will get shortly to the, the elephant in the room, right? Like the large language models, generative models. But before that, I would encourage all the attendees to post their questions in the Q&A. And it's, it's nice to see the comment from one of the attendees that, that they read the, your book as part of the summer course that okay. the co your co-author Patrick Hall taught. And it's, it's really nice to hear that. So, so in, in the book, one of the incidents you discuss is what happened with Zillow's iBuying program. Could you perhaps share some lessons that we can learn from the rise and fall of uh, this project? Yes, so we've tried to also give case studies uh, where uh, because case studies always help to understand things better. But in no way, like they're trying to point out that Zillow did the strong or this could have happened with any company. And I personally know a lot of brilliant engineers who work at Zillow. But this is a great way to understand what can go wrong if you miss out the red flags. So Zillow, as everybody knows, is a real estate tech company, and it sort of changed the whole real estate market in its prime. So in 2018, if I'm correct, I think it entered the business of what is called iBind, which was initially called Zillow Offers, and then it was called iBind, which was, it started buying houses, under market value houses, and then it started to refurbish them, and then it sold it for a profit. So they started doing it in 2018. And initially what they did was they brought in a bunch of people whom we could say domain experts or maybe the local real estate people and other domain experts. And they had this ML algorithm, which they call Zestimate, which is a Z in front of estimate. And they used this to sort of predict the price of the houses. So if you see that local real estate agents have a lot of know-how about, you know, what is going to be the price of this house or 
what is tomorrow going to be developed in front of the house? Will it property valuation go down, go up? So these people have a lot of knowledge about that. So uh, these, so they started predicting the house prices. And uh, but what happened was the house pricing market during that time was pretty much inflated. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the domain experts take time, because we are humans, we sort of taken a lot of variables into account. Zillow sort of was, they wanted to get the offers fast. And so what they did was to scale up, they sort of got rid of the, firstly, the first red flag, they got rid of the humans in the loop. So they solely started relying on their ML algorithm to predict prices. Now, they were in such a rush or they wanted to scale so fast that they actually acquired properties at the rate of about 10,000 homes per quarter, which is huge. Now, you acquire such a lot of houses, then you also have to flip them, you have to sell them. But houses, unlike any other products, even let's say used car, it takes time, you have to refurbish, you have to re- renovate a house, and only then can you sell it. The problem is the local contractors could keep up. It used to take time for the house to, uh, and then COVID struck, pandemic struck. So again, they did not have those local renovators. The house prices market also started to slow down. And then what happened was a total, you could say, what you a company like Zillow would have never expected was a lot of houses, inventory just sort of going up. They were not able to sell, price, sell the houses. And it, the situation went so bad that literally they had to post their houses at a loss. I mean, even lower than what they bought it for. Not only that, they had to write off $500 million. Mm-hmm. And the worst part, and this is where I say that, you know, at the end of <laughs> wrong decisions, is always human. They had to let go 2,000 uh, of their workforce, uh, which is like one fourth part of that. So, so ultimately, yes, the company incurred losses, but I think the ultimate is a lot of people lost their jobs. And they might be from many other departments also. They could be from human resource, they could be from marketing, they could be from anyone. Now, this case study, what does it show? I think the first red flag for me is you should always validate with human experts. Mm-hmm. Human experts might not be always as fast as the algorithm, but their experience is very, very important, especially for high risk situations, especially this also I would consider high risk. Secondly, again, the word that I said, and she forecast failure mode. They should have thought like, what will happen if maybe the, the, the price bubble bursts, the housing prices burst, and what would happen? So they sort of should have envisaged it beforehand, before buying so many houses per week. Uh, and I think model monitoring here should have, if they had a proper model monitoring framework, this should have actually raised the red flag. Like the model accuracy should have gone down because uh, the price that their model or their algorithm was predicting was not the price that is now in the market. So there should have been a red flag that your model is decaying. There is a drift. And that is something which for me is very difficult to sort of digest that how they could do that. So, so essentially, I think, and it's also said that the, the, the governance is also gone because Zillow is actually, the, the management there is all, always famous for risk-taking, but this one went too far, I think. So for me, these are the two or three takeaways. 
Yeah, yes, I, I think like these are all really insightful lessons, right? Again, from the spirit of what can we learn from this incident, as opposed to we're not necessarily pointing fingers at uh, this company or any one company. I think, as I mentioned, just like in this case of real estate, in any domain, the models might degrade over time. Often, the conditions under which the models are trained may not necessarily hold during uh, deployment. So it's very important to make sure that we we not only like test the models before deployment, but continuously like keep auditing and monitoring them post-deployment. Yeah, the other uh, highlight I remember when reading this section in the book is you emphasize that unlike perhaps other incidents, AI-related incidents can offer occur at scale, right? And so that's also a huge risk. This, this is an analogous discussion I re- recall reading is in the in the book by Kathy O'Neill, The Weapons of Math Destruction, where she emphasizes that when the when the data-driven models have some biases, they have the potential to cause bias at a huge scale. Unlike, say, let's say a human judge or a human expert who might have some their own biases so likewise even with a incidents i think the, this fact that they can occur at this huge scale and uh, then that might result in huge impact in terms of business impact or impacting the people and so forth i think that's something to always keep in mind yes totally i think it's the 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 dangerous uh, aspect of this like you said is the scaling and the scale can be huge. And so the ramifications of it is also huge. So I, I see a question from Apoor. Would love to hear your opinion on risk management in banks. Often the risk management is driven by regulation, yet the banks seem to fail quite often. Where do you see the state of regulation in AI? So I think this is what I also started with. We don't have any regulation in AI as of now. There's been a lot of voices around and the EU AI Act. And so, but we don't have, and I think it's not very clear. So you have different groups now. There's one group which talks about existential risk. There's another group which is actually talking about that we're not worried about the existential risk. We are worried about the existing risk which I mean like the biases and and those kind of risks. So to say, even I don't have any answer, like, because we, I don't know. And, and the weird thing is that a lot of people who actually are experts in that are not involved in those talks of regulation. If you've also seen, there are people who are meeting the presidents and everyone, but I've not seen anybody apart from the big companies there. Um, so... For me, I think a good way is NIST for me, I think it's a good first way. And if regulations are based on something what risk is also proposed, it's something that I find easy to implement, easy to follow. Because again, regulation should also be something that should be easy to follow and should be practical. So we have to, I think, uh, in today's world and look at, at the pace at which things are going on in AI, I mean, it, it's like I was saying, uh, when we started writing the book, there was no talk of LLM. LLMs for us were like birds and things like that. And by the time we ended the book, it was crazy. Initially, we would talk about you know millions of parameters, but now billions of parameters has become the new normal. 
So we have to accept the fact that we are not going to go back from here. And we have to accept this and now create regulations in a way, keeping humans at the center stage and seeing profit away from, you know, what we are trying to achieve. And we are going to have voices from every sector here. It has to be a diversified panel who's going to make the final call. And this is what happened in NIST. So why I'm quoting a lot about from NIST is because these people were working for about one year or something. They were they opened up the draft to people. The people then also gave their recommendations, suggestions. Everybody was welcome. And then they finally created the whole uh, AI RMS. So to be honest, even I don't know where this is going to go. We've had the EU AI set. Um, Let's see. And then the, the weird part is uh, every country also has to adopt. So every country will then adopt and then go from there. Honestly, it's a long road. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I think as you mentioned, with, with the rapid pace of developments in AI makes some of the regulations a little bit harder compared to, say, a sector like banking. Even in a sector like banking, I, I do think that the regulations have helped a lot the regulations, whether they are from an end-user point of view, like the fair credit lending-related regulations, or regulations from a risk management point of view, which are more like SR-117, I think these regulations have definitely helped. Even though we see a few bank failures, especially recent failures like the Silicon Valley Bank, well, uh, yeah, the, the regulations still seem to have played a big role. In fact, one of the reasons perhaps th this failure happened is because, because the they were not covered by the regulation. If the regulation was more perhaps more comprehensive, then these kinds of issues may have been detected early on. So likewise, I think the, in the case of AI, the challenge is to craft regulations at the right level, like not, the regulations should not be too granular or too specific to kind of stifle innovation. At the same time, the regulations have to be at the level where it addresses different types of risks, right? I think the, the aspects like the NIST AA risk management framework or the, the White House or uh, science and technology AA guidelines, I think all those are kind of right steps in that direction. Hopefully, like in sometime over this year or next year, we will see a set of such regulations and the, of course, the regulators, the, those who are designing the regulations have to collaborate with the people who are working in this field so that the regulations can be done at the, the right level. So, so I see another question, which is for high-risk machine learning applications, do you think it's necessary to have model development standards on how to build a predictive model? For many people in the tech field, the main joy of doing data science is the experimentation aspect of the work. But in regulated industries, it's it may not be advisable. How do we align following the instructions from regulations and at the same time maintaining creativity and innovation? So that's a big question. So, well, I think experimentation is always allowed, but what the regulators in the end want and it's like if you also put yourself in the shoes of the people that you applied for a loan and you denied that, you would want to know why I was denied this loan. So, so anybody would want to know that. Now, the problem with some of the predictive models is that they are black box. 
and there's no way you can sort of tell, even for experts, even for the people who might have just written that algorithm, that how the model is making its predictions. So in that case, we have to go for models which are explainable. Now, you know, initially I, I used to read a lot of a lot of forums and in a lot of, you could say, articles that it was said that, you know, there's a trade-off between accuracy and explainability, which means that if you want a highly accurate model, then you will not get an explainable model and vice versa. But we've also addressed this thing in our book that sometimes, and there's a great paper by Cynthia Rubin who says that stop explaining high-stakes decisions with black box models. It essentially says that you know, there is no trade-off. Today, we have models which are both explainable and as accurate, if not maybe more than your best model. So look at GANs, which is generalized additive models. So these models, they also preserve the interactions between the features. They also give you high score, high accuracy, but you can explain the decisions made by these models. There are others. So there's something by Microsoft, which is called explainable boosting machine. Again, those are also at par with your FlexXT Boost or LightGBM, but they're explainable. So if I give you a choice of, let's say, do you want an explainable, accurate model or you want a black box, accurate model, which one would you choose? Of course, I think the, the answer would be to choose an explainable model because then that makes it easy for you to also sort of give explanations and reasons which are also required by regulators. So, so that is something you, have, you should keep in mind. Of course, like if you're going to say about image and text, uh, we can't change those models. So that will have to go for a deep neural net. Then we also have to take help from some of the explainable techniques to apply for that. But if you are working for a domain where you have the choice between an explainable model and a black box model. I would advise to go for an explainable one. Yeah. Yes. I, I think these are really uh, fantastic pointers. I would encourage all of you to take a look at uh, the paper <coughs> by Pierre Rudin in, uh, in in the Nature Machine Intelligence perspectives and also the the other work from Microsoft Research. It's not as though there is always a trade-off. Often in the process of building interpretable models or in the process of um, fixing biases of the models, we, we might end up improving the performance of the model as a whole. It may not necessarily be a trade-off between accuracy and fairness or accuracy and uh, interpretability and so forth. So this might be a good time to kind of shift a little bit to the large language models and generative AI models. So as, as we discussed, they, they have been evolving at such a rapid pace. So as you mentioned in the book, the risk management for these systems is not as well understood as it is for, say, supervised models. What may be some of the guardrails we can consider in the meantime? So, yes, I think this, this field is still evolving. We are getting every new model, bigger model, small model. And if I go through my Twitter timeline, I keep seeing people experiment, experimenting with this. But then there are also one set of people who are actually trying to jailbreak this. So I really follow them. And uh, uh, so I think very basic things would be uh, 
for any person to do today as of this, as of today maybe, is very simple things like don't copy paste directly from there and just put it out because firstly hallucinations, we don't know is that what they are just spitting out is truth or not. Secondly, we don't even know if that is plagiarized. So you don't want to put yourself in a situation, let's say you copy an essay from there and next day you see some copyright claim to your work. Uh, so check the generated content properly. And I, what I've seen is there's a lot of plugins that are coming out, you know, so for example, for chat GPT, people are creating like, don't waste your time on this, plugins for everything, plugins for reading your emails, plugins for reading papers. So be cautious of those plugins because there's a very nice example, which is given by Simon Wilson, actually, if you're not following if not following him, please follow him on Twitter. He is actually doing a lot of work on, on jailbreaking systems and testing these LLMs. So he said that people are creating plugins for reading their emails and then also replying them automatically. And he said, think of a scenario where there's, a, there's an automated uh, plugin and assistant which reads your email, forwards them to some other email and then delete all your emails. Think of such possibilities also. So just don't blindly go for automating everything. Like I see some of the posts on my LinkedIn feed also, you're using ChatGPT wrong, you're using this wrong, that wrong, do this, do this. And other than that, also, I think there's a very nice um, thing that people are doing some research on data poisoning of large language models. And it's, it's come to light that because large language models are instruction tuned, and so if you poison even very few samples of that training data, you might be able to sort of poison your model and it's, you can sort of make it given output that you want. So data poisoning is something which is coming out and which uh, is a little alarming also because uh, you know, it's, it's the strength of these large campaign models lies on the data on which they are trained. But then this data is out, it, it's crowdsourced. And if there's an adversary which poisons this data and then you blindly download this and use this for your application, then so you have to be aware that this is not Oracle. Be very careful when using them. And again, I think there's this whole talk about open source and, of course, proprietary. So at least for open source, you can download on your system. Proprietary, you'll have to send your data to them. I think there's an example of something where an employee actually put their documents, you know, they wanted some help, so they copy-pasted some of their documents on, on chat GPT. And it went into the training data and then it was actually giving out the details so it had to be banned ultimately. So I think these are very common. I think these are not some very, I don't know, specific ones, but just, these are just common sense, I would say, guardrails. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. I think as, as you kind of highlighted, there are several uh, challenges, right? One is like data poisoning. And this is something recently uh, people have shown that it's it's fairly easy to poison the, these large language models. And, and the challenge is that if the model is models are poisoned because of the huge size of the models, it may be hard to detect them, even if they are available as uh, open source models. Even if you have access to the models, it may still be very hard to detect those. The other dimensions you touched upon are uh, dimensions like privacy from the perspective of privacy of the person who is 
uh, querying the model, right? Like the Samsung example, or there may also be concerns from the perspective of uh, say copyright, uh, like the model might be trained on content that might contain copyrighted information or information from perhaps the competing companies that uh, as compared to your organization. So it's often important as you point out in the book to not just copy paste the response. It may be yeah, while we are developing tools to detect all these kinds of issues, it may be good to at least rephrase in the case of uh, generated text. So just take the response from the LLM as inspiration but but uh, rephrase or kind of uh, don't just use it as is because there might be it's possible that it may be just mimicking content which is copyrighted so another dimension here is to ensure that the these models are robust it's often these models may be very brittle so before building an llm based application it's important to stress test the models for robustness this is one one aspect that we we have been working on recently. We recently open sourced a tool called Fiddler Auditor, which is a way to measure how sensitive the model is to minor perturbations in the input. If the input has not semantically changed, but syntactically it has been modified, we would expect the output of the model to ideally not change substantially. So that's kind of the intuition underlying the robustness checking that we're doing. Yeah. If you're interested in more pointers, I, I would encourage you to also take a look at a tutorial that uh, we, we have been presenting at uh, a few research conferences. We will be, we, we presented at the ACM Fairness, Accountability and Transparency Conference a few weeks back. We're going to be presenting the same tutorial at ICML and KDD conferences over the next few weeks. We'll be happy to share the link to the tutorial and we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So, so another comment I hear, actually before going to the next question, so what, uh, related to the previous discussion on how to kind of balance creativity, innovation, and following the instructions in the regulations, one aspect I could think of is it might be helpful to perform experimentation in a sandboxed environment. So that way, if you think of, say, let's say you are at a large bank and you want to consider a new machine learning model for deciding whom to provide loans or credit to. So it may be good to simulate the effect of that in a sandboxed environment before actually deploying it on real people. So that way, it's it kind of balances performing innovation, performing some kind of creative ways of doing things and testing the effect of those before actually deploying. So that might be a middle ground that might balance both these aspects, the following regulations and also supporting innovation or creativity. Yeah, I think uh, this is a great point and I think this could also apply to the products. I mean, something pre-alpha or pre-beta stage where you just open it up to a few people and then in a more of a testing phase, and the, if if the company has that bandwidth, and and then I think this could I think the way you talked about robustness in a way this could be stress testing robustness and ultimately then the product that comes out at least you'll be sort of sure that at least you've taken care of some of the main issues that could have come up because 
ultimately opening it up to people and then testing on people is again i think not a very good idea yeah of course there is a, there is a, a tricky aspect with regulations as so i think one of the attendees points out that often regulars regulation raises the barrier for new players or for even investment and as a result it often helps the dominant incumbent players so that's always a a challenging aspect of regulations and i don't think there is any, any easy answer at least i'm not aware of a, a technical answer to this broader problem so another question i see is i didn't catch the discussion about model cards earlier what are the best practices in creating model cards what should be included and how can i use them to align with other teams uh so model cards basically is sort of a document that gives all the information about your model so it is an analogy that could be would would be like you have labels at the back of the food items that you buy from the market and so you have you know what is the ingredient when to use when not to use best before that so we have very good templates i think from google i think it was created by margaret mitchell who who sort of came up with the idea of model cards and model cards can be as you can say you can put as much of detail as you want right from what are the libraries used when you should use it when you should not use it uh, uh, what are the what are the data that was used which data you think is sensitive who was involved in in let's say which was the crowd was the data crowd source whether from where you acquired the data so every little detail and it actually depends upon you how much you want to and then you can also sort of give where it could be used where it should not be used uh, so so it, i think there are great examples if you go to the website of model cars you'll find some great detailed examples now if you even see on hubbing face all the models they do come with model cards so if you go click on them but it of course depends upon the person who's filling them so it essentially depends upon you if you're the creator of the model or your company how detailed you want it to be and i also think that model cards are there there are also data cards which is specifically meant for data i also think there could be something called model inventory if you are as a company to have a clear idea of how many models you've deployed at this moment so how many models are in production how many models are not in production how many models your customers are using they fall into which field so right if it instead i somebody was to ask okay how many models how many of your models are there in production at this moment so you know okay there are hundreds of them at this moment and stuff like that so it's essentially just more information as much as you can give because that makes it easier for people let's say who have not been involved in creating the model but they'll read the model cards they'll get an understanding and when you also try to describe things some of the red flag or some of the problems with the models can also be caught at that very simple when you're defining something yeah yes i i think these are really nice points and thanks to dimple for sharing a link to an example model card from the project that they have done and, and if you search for model cards on um, any search engine you can find a set of links including the link to the original paper titled model cards for model reporting as well as like as uh, parul mentioned model cards ho- provided by hugging face and several other players uh, so uh, 
I know that you, you're based in India and you have been very much plugged in into the AI and machine learning in Indian settings. Are there unique aspects and challenges or anything interesting you have come across when it comes to applications of LLMs and other generative AI models in Indian settings? Like there's one at the back of my mind is, and I think it's, it's, it's something that we've been hearing everywhere now that most of the large language models today are focused on English language. But what about countries and places who, whose native language is not English, like especially for India, who has so many different languages, we don't even have fun. So how do we make these language, large language models or these services useful for others? So there you could say, a group called AI for Bharat, which has been working. Uh, the people are from, some of them are from Microsoft and they're working with IIT Madras. And they've actually come up with repositories where they have uh, languages and data sets curated in Indian languages. And I think this is really a great thing that they're doing because it's very difficult to find a data set in these specific languages. And they've open sourced it. They've put it on their website. So for if people in India, they want to create a product which is localized, AI product, then we can use them ready made because I think getting data is the hardest hurdle that one faces. And essentially, I think uh, going further, we should see more collaborations from countries whose, whose native language is not English to come out with such large language models which are like fine-tuned for their own specific languages. Because this is essentially when we say democratization of AI. So AI should not be limited to just few people, a few countries, or few geographies. But it should be, um, in a way, uh, be accessible to everyone. And getting the data in your local languages, I think, is a great place to start mm -hmm. with. Yeah, yes, I, I think the, when I first got to know about the AI for Bharat initiative uh, from our uh, earlier discussion, it, I found it really, really uh, fascinating. And they have developed an app called Jugalbandi, which provides a way for people, even people maybe in some remote village to communicate through the app and get access to government services. It's a really, really interesting way in which they're leveraging generative AI and large language models. I, I, I would encourage all of us to check this out. And also, um, I'm, I'm kind of really excited and looking forward to yeah, an event, a virtual event that the ACM uh, India KDD group is organizing on August 6th. So the, the, I will be part of a panel on generative AI in India. And one of the other panelists is a researcher who has been working on AI for Bharat. Okay. So if you're interested, please please take a register for that event and would love to have everyone join there. I, th I think we, are, we have a few minutes left and uh, I'd like to take another question, which, which is what are some things we can consider or implement to reduce the risk probability before deploying a model? So I think uh, if we have to, we want to ensure, and I'll just sort of digress a little bit and just give an example. We've all used mobile phones today and I've had, I've, I've visited a lab where these are actually created and made. 
And so every mobile phone undergoes a series of stress tests, about 100 or 1,000. So, so they, they are left from, let's say, some feet and continuously. They're switched on and off multiple times. And so they are stress tested so much. Um, they put music, they're thrown from there so to test whether they'll break or not. And so, so, so that before they land on our trial, it's ensured that, you know, they are robust, they've gone very steps and they work as intended. So for AI in the same way, AI models, AI products are also products. And so before releasing them, make sure they are continuously tested. Uh, robust, check for robustness, check for um, have cyber security is an element which should be now become an integral part of our machine learning life cycle. Red teaming, uh, bug bounties. So all these stuff, just make sure that you are going to ship a product and this product is going to go in the hands of consumers and the consumers should not be affected. I think if you go with that mentality, I'm sure you're going to create products which are safe. So ultimately, as data scientists, as machine learning engineers, our ultimate responsibility is to create products that are safe and you have to ensure safety as creators of it. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think to, to kind of just to add to that, as technologists, we all have this shared responsibility of ensuring that various machine learning best practices, risk management frameworks, and so forth are followed. And uh, the onus is on us as much as everyone else to kind of create awareness about these dimensions and uh, uh, work with other stakeholders, whether these they are they may be from engineering, product, uh, or legal, or security, and several other teams, including the those who may be impacted by the machine learning models, to kind of collectively arrive at consensus and arrive at ways to address these issues beforehand. If you are interested more, please take a look at Parul's book. Uh, and Parul, uh, I remember you may also have the link for a kind of a trial access to the Oreilly, the entire Oreilly collection. Yes. Right? Yes. So, so, so I think for the first ten days, also you can just log into the Oreilly account, and then I also have a link for additional thirty days, so that makes it forty days. So you have access to the entire Oreilly platform where you can read books, including ours, but you can also read all the other O'Reilly books also. So we'll also share that link, but I think I had shared it already, but I'm happy to share it again. So you do get access to it, but if somebody wants the DRM-free ebook, please let me know because O'Reilly can also email some books. So if somebody is really interested to read that, or I can talk to O'Reilly and they can send you DRM-free ebooks as well. Sounds great. On that note, um, thank you all again for joining and we look forward to seeing you all in the next uh, AA Explained. Thank you all. Thank you.